When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you look for it, every day has cause for celebration. Celebrate a friend for their promotion baby wedding life thing. Celebrate yourself for keeping the couch warm. It's no easy feat, especially if it's a big couch. Or maybe you just want to celebrate living in 2023 where you can get beer, wine, and spirits delivered from Drizzly in under 60 minutes without leaving said couch. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com and get your favorite drinks delivered today. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of stuff going on in the world right now. We've got a terrible war happening that somehow over the last few months has just kind of become the norm. There's high inflation. There is rising rents and home prices and interest rates and just seems like a crazy time. But you know what? You don't have to be alone in this. And believe me, you are not because we all feel it. And there is help out there. Without a healthy mind, being truly happy and at peace is hard. Well, the good news is that therapy works. But what is therapy exactly? It's whatever you want it to be. Maybe you're not feeling motivated, you're just feeling overwhelmed with things that are going on in the world and you need some tools to help with all this stress. Whatever you need, it's time to stop being ashamed of these normal human struggles and just start feeling better because you deserve to be happy. And now you don't have to worry about finding an in-person therapist near you to help. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with someone in under 48 hours. So join the millions of people who are seeing what online therapy is really about It's always a good time to invest in yourself because you are your greatest asset. And right now, we got a special offer for SongFacts podcast listeners. You can get an extra 10% off your first month of professional therapy at betterhelp.com slash songfacts. That's betterhelp.com slash songfacts. Thank you again to BetterHelp for sponsoring this show. Songfacts Hello, 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 and welcome to the Song Facts Podcast. I am your host, Corey O'Flanagan, and it is a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. It's always appreciated if you want to take a quick moment and hit that subscribe button and go text this link to five friends so we can keep spreading the word and trying to grow this thing. Having a great time doing it. Always just want to give our appreciation to you for listening, and just know that we love music and bringing you new stories behind these songs. As always, this podcast is a part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. So I am really excited to bring you today's guest, as he is not only sharing stories of some of the most recognized songs of the 90s, but also from his battles with addiction and giving a great message of hope along the way. 
Jim Sonnefeld is the drummer for Hootie and the Blowfish, but what you might not know is that he also penned some of their biggest hits, including Time and Hold My Hand, which we talk about in depth here today. Jim recently released a book detailing his life's work called Swimming with the Blowfish, Hootie, Healing, and One Hell of a Ride. I've been fortunate enough to receive a copy. I've read the majority of it, and I highly recommend it. There's going to be a lot of nostalgia if you're born in the early 80s or 70s or even late 60s and just kind of remember the way that these guys erupted into the music scene in the mid-90s. But besides that, he's also releasing some new music as the lead singer and songwriter, which we get to hear about as well. So please enjoy Jim Sonnefield. Put on a little deal So this whole thing is just, Carl kind of presented this to me to chat with you, and it hadn't been something that I had thought about doing. I was 13 or 14 when you guys really broke out, and um, so you were on my radar, and I was a fan of the music and stuff like that, but I knew you mostly from MTV and things like that. So getting the opportunity to, and thank you for sharing your book, um, do we know when that's going to be released? Just did. It just came out uh, like uh, the 28th of June. So we're still uh, sort of uh, gathering steam. And I've never, it's my first book. So it's a whole new world compared to the music business. Uh, the book business is has its similarities, but, I, you know, I'm not familiar with any of the ways, the intricacies that they do. They do. So it's a brand new world. How did you find the process of going back and trying to dig up all these memories? I'm always so curious about this because memories are crazy. And I'm like, do you get on a roll where you're like, you start out and I feel like you'd be frustrated at first because maybe you're just not recollecting as much as you hope to. And then the snowball just grows and it's like, oh, there's that one too. And you make a little note of it so that you can trigger that memory when you're sitting down for the next writing session. Or, Or how does that work? Because you really are detailed on some of this stuff. It's incredible. I was really lucky to have time on my side. I wanted to just start it slow. And my first idea wasn't to be extremely detailed. Uh, It was to tell interesting stories that uh, people could attach themselves to and find to be either uh, filled with a lesson of sorts or uh, some news that was, they didn't know before. uh, And maybe just you know have a few laughs and some emotion but the the more i dug and realized i actually do want this thing to be as honest as possible it led me to really digging deep using the internet using really only a couple people close to me that happened hmm. to have uh, been privy to the 90s and even part of the 80s uh but not using them uh fully in their experience because writing a memoir is really about how I saw through things through my eyes. Yeah. I came to a point where I realized, Oh wait, there is a difference. I'm not like just gathering data from a bunch of people or gathering 
what so-and-so thought of Hootie and the Blowfish in 1991 or what uh, my mom thought of my birthday in 1987. It's <laughs> what, what was my feeling? What was my, and, and that's two different things. I mean, it's the few times I started asking about an event that happened or a time period, I was so amazed at the variety of answers I got that I was like, oh, I'm not opening this Pandora. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, this is a whole other book that, that needs to be written, but I need to stick to what uh, what uh, what I felt at the time. And so uh, we had to, it was great because it got me in touch with a lot of people. My siblings especially had a little group thread going about, hey, what happened in 1968 or 78? And, oh, interesting. Yeah, and though and though we often had completely different memories of of an event that we all were there for, it's still yeah. a great way to to bond with them and to laugh and have some good memories. Memories is a funny thing, man, and uh, so we got to be careful how many people we ask about a certain event. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. I wouldn't even think about that. And you're like, well, I don't remember a single thing that you just said. So, but maybe I've got to give you some sort of credit because you were there and that's that's your memory of it. But yeah, it's a really, I don't know. It's a really fascinating thing. And as I'm, so I had just a couple days, so I obviously couldn't completely finish the book, but I got through, I would say the first half for sure up to the point where you guys are done recording the second album and stuff like that, Um, which is kind of like such an interesting, fascinating thing because of how you guys progressed and then just um, this meteoric shot once that album drops and starts gaining momentum. But I wanted to kind of go back here to um, the early 90s because I think what a lot of people won't know is uh, you know, you penned a lot of these songs that they're singing along to. And I was about, like, a lot of times reading puts me to sleep, and I was about to fall asleep last night, and I got to the section of the book um, when you start talking about writing Hold My Hand. With a little love and some tenderness We'll walk upon the water We'll rise above the mist with a little peace and some harmony We'll take the world together, we'll take them by the hand Cause I got a hand for you And what I love is that you put yourself in this position as a pretty novice guitar player struggling to just stretch out that, that ring finger and play the correct B and so you're like, well, I'll modify and play this B6, which becomes this very, um, a sound that everyone's going to know when they hear the intro to that song. And it, like this song just comes out of you. You're, you're limited in the chords that you're, you can do. Um, and it just pours out of you. And that's the reason, these types of stories are the reasons that I love doing this show. And I'm wondering if you can share some of that story and, and then afterwards what you realized looking back after you wrote that song what it meant to you well yeah certainly while you're writing and writing as a novice you there is a limitation you know uh, with your hands and uh, but also I think at the same time there's a purity that that can sneak through uh, when you are limited you have something profound you want to say and all of our hearts say profound things I believe and feel profound things but you're limited in the on the musical side, you get kind of a really pretty and naive but beautifully naive picture. 
you know, I want to say something amazing, but gosh, I only have a few few chords I know. That there's a great moment to catch there where there's a combination of being unsure, but uh, sort of devout in your thought as well. You know, just like I got to get this thing out. So yeah. that was me. With I had written some songs before that. I tried to put together chords, and nothing was jumping out. You know, it was all I don't know novice music. But when I started writing that song, it um, quickly was feeling like a new thing. Like, wait, this is flowing. This is, uh, and I think I mentioned in the book, it sort of propelled itself. I didn't yeah. have to stop and go, dang, I'm stuck. I don't know what to do here. It propelled itself as I was sitting there. And those are the special moments, I think, that songwriters go after, where you're trying to say something, you're trying to have a certain melody, and they're flowing at the same time and, and coming together. So that's what Hold My Hand was for me. And it also happened to come at a time where I was in a transition from band to band. And my reason for even joining Hootie and the Blowfish was not because they had a great name <laughs> or because they were, you know, selling out theaters. It's because they wanted to write their own material. And I thought that was beautiful to say, hey, we, we haven't written a lot of our own stuff. We're mainly a cover band but we want to drop everything else in our lives to try and go for this thing. And I thought, this is the time for me to get on that boat. And, and I did, I jumped on and we all sort of high five and said, let's try and do this thing. And uh, that was the beginning of, of that version of Hooting the Blowfish. Well, I really like that the band that you were playing with before that had the lead name Tootie. <laughs> and clearly you were on some sort of rhyming theme. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's funny. I think band names do have trends through the years. Like there's trends where you have to have a, a one word band name like spoon or spit or tongue, yeah. or, you know, <laughs> drive. And then there's other ones where that's like super, super goofy. Or I think there's ears where there's so-and-so and the so-and-sos there's that. But I don't think it was contrived at all. I mean, Hootie and Tootie sort of came around the same time in the same town, town. But I mean, if you're called Tootie and the Jones and then you're another band in town, are you really going to try and rhyme with Tootie and the Jones? That wouldn't seem like, <laughs> I don't know. So I think they were unrelated, I guess is the point. Well, you can get like a crossover fan base because they might just like read the bill wrong and then show up to your show. And they were like, oh, we actually like these guys more than we like Tootie. Right, Hootie and Tootie, and uh, we did a couple gigs together. And I, it was while I was uh, finishing up with Tootie, and I was in Hootie, but really hadn't made a full jump yet. And I thought, uh, let's do a gig, let's do a fundraiser. And so we actually did a fundraiser that was um, like three bands I had played or was playing in, and that was fun, all for a good cause. So yeah. Um, I'm not going to just like beat you down here with the old material, but kind of like building a set list. You got to talk about some of the stuff that the people are more familiar with. And then we get into some of the new stuff. Um, so you were writing, you started writing, um, some of these songs that became the big hit in Cracked Reviewer in 95, but these were written in the nineties, early nineties, even late eighties. And that thinking about that kind of thing got me wondering so you all had been playing these songs that were future hits, massive hits, four or five years before the album blows up. And myself and most people will only ever remember hearing them as a hit, being told, like, this is a hit song. 
there's a bunch of people on the East Coast and in Colombia where you live and all that kind of stuff where they've been hearing these songs for a long time because they were out seeing you guys before you really made it. But were there any clues that you saw looking back that you can say like, yeah, I guess that did have hit potential now that I can like reflect on that? I mean, when you're a bar band, you're not signed to a major label. Uh, you're writing songs when you're not traveling on the weekends to do bar gigs. Uh, going out and playing those for people live is your test. It's like yeah. the greatest research program you could ever do as a musician. And kind of somewhat, I think, what we're lacking today in the age where you can self-produce on your laptop at home and upload it to Spotify and people can listen and say, ooh, I love that. But yeah. really the more old fashioned way to do it is to write songs as a band and without the internet, the only way to go out is to play them in front of people. And what better test market do you have, but to get up with, you know, no pretension or anything in front of a group of people who have paid three bucks to get in a bar and play that song and watch how they react. And that's how from 1990 to 1990. <clears throat> the end of 93 when we got signed that's how we knew certain songs were uh, worthy of radio or at least if we ever had a chance to get on radio these are the ones we would pitch and it was hold my hand which we've been playing since 1990 let her cry only want to be with you time these are songs we wrote in 1991 uh running from an angel all these songs uh that ended up on cracked review in 94 had been played hundreds of times in front of people. And you know, yeah. we had dozens of other songs that were uh, of a similar uh, style that didn't make it because when we played them and we looked at the audience and people were, you know, staring at us with a weird, you know, deer in headlights look or saying, oh, I think it's time to go to the bathroom or get a beer. Those songs didn't make it. And so you, we just did literally like a four uh, year test run on live material and it tells you you become very informed over the years what works and what doesn't and those ones that stayed at the top became the songs on Cracked Review. Yeah. Is it um is that kind of instant feedback I'm going to transition off of that question. I'm curious because what the thing that you wrote about in there is how you guys were able, especially for the first album and the first batch of songs that you were writing, whether or not they ended up making it or not, you guys were able, able to check your egos at the door. And to me, to be in your mid-20s or whatever it is and have that maturity to be able to do that and come in with a song that you might be super proud of and then, you know, someone else in the band is like, really like it. Let's take the melody here. Let's change up these lyrics and start rearranging things into like, just allow that to happen without any ego is so unique to me. But maybe that's just because of where I'm coming from. And I'm just wondering if you feel like that's a unique situation or if you were like, that just seemed natural to us. It seemed natural. I think we all just were able to read the room at the time, which said, we're in a band called Hooting the Blowfish. It's 1989 and we're trying to write songs and there's bigger bands on the radio and we don't have a big fan base, but we really want to, you know, get one step further. So you read, you, you check yourself, you read the room and say, I guess it's not the time to have an ego or to worry if 
somebody doesn't like your chorus or if somebody wants to rewrite your verse or uh, whatever. We all knew, let's try and write the best songs we can. We collaborated and let the fans sort of decide if they were uh, viable songs. And yeah, I mean, we were also naive uh, to some degree. We hadn't had time. There was nothing to give us an ego. Certainly there yeah. There's people in bands that play in front of 50 people in a club that have huge egos. And I don't think they last very long yeah. <laughs> in the world, in the business. Or some maybe do, but uh, we felt like, yeah, that let's not do that. We And we stumbled upon some bands, too, that took themselves very seriously and like were really precise and, and perfect and had to dress a certain way and act like they were some something that they were not yet. And we looked at those bands like, wow, that is, looks really uh, draining. <laughs> yeah. You know, we chose to, a, a simpler route. We didn't even care what we wore. We like probably one of the few bands that really didn't care what we looked like or what you thought of us. We just laid it out there for people and let them decide. And, you know, eventually the songs, I think, spoke for themselves. Yeah, for sure. What can you tell me about the story behind making time? Time, why you punish me? Like a wave crashing into the shore, you wash away my dreams. Time, why you? It was another one that we had a nice little period of of writing. We sort of charged into 1990. We saved our money and got to make a, a five song demo up in Raleigh, North Carolina, with a guy who was like a legit producer, and it was somebody we could afford. And gosh, we had a product. You know, product. We had some artwork, and we kind of thought this is feeling good. And I think it really inspired us musically and uh, emotionally to really keep writing and that we felt like we were going in the right direction. So all of us, I think, uh, just worked a little harder. And, and this song and a couple other big, big songs for the band came at that time. I think I was living, subletting a place with Mark maybe. And, uh, you know, we just had a little time on our hands and that lick, which is sort of, uh, rooted on a D chord uh, is just something again through maybe my novice guitar style that I came up with uh, at the time to say, Ooh, I can do a little hammer on that. Uh, what is it? The uh, G string maybe, or the, uh, I can't remember uh, the D string. No, the, yeah. Can't even remember, but it's I was good. trying to figure that out last night as I was listening to that riff again. <laughs> yeah, it's easy. And, 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 but it's interesting enough. And again, if you have something profound to say over a simple music. I don't think they're uh, challenging each other for space. The simple guitar chord leaves room for uh, a, a heartfelt lyric, and we had all things meaning at that time. So I had the idea for, you know, the main melody sort of there and the verse. Time is this. I was basically speaking to time, saying, "Why are you treating me so poorly?" I was a little pathetic, you know, outreach to say, "I wish I had more time," or "I wish." I could learn something with my time. I wish I was smarter uh, with my time. And so that became the theme for the song. And 
I had structured a little arrangement with verses and choruses, and I mainly was asking time to show me something meaningful. You know, will you teach me about tomorrow and all the pain and sorrow? Just a few phrases came out and the repetition of time, time, time. Yeah. Uh, I brought to the band. Mark sort of gave me the confidence to say, ooh, that's a great idea. Keep working on it and bring it in for our next practice. And so mm. that's how we did a lot of songs. Mark was, he writes a lot of, uh, a wealth of material. So he's coming up with a lot of good uh, guitar ideas and, and structured chords and, uh, we just threw it all out there on the table and that's one that stuck and it was meaningful to me lyrically because it, it always will tell me about that time in my life. But again, the way Hootie wrote at that time, I presented some lyrics and a guide, but Darius, he had an idea that he wanted in his head as well. And he had yeah. to sing the song. So mainly like the second verse and the third verse and all the scatting shout outs are Darius and his emotions. And strangely at times they worked well like i was coming from one place darius was coming from a different place yet it seemed to all work you know there was no nobody needed to lay down a boundary or you can't change that word or yeah do you mind he didn't even have to ask if he could change words it was like dude you, you gotta sing it sing whatever you want stay tuned for more song facts podcast right after this oh we're in for a long one a long weekend that is and you deserve to spend it on the couch with a glass of something good. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered quickly. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y dot com today. One thing that you wrote about in there was how you guys would... um a lot of the choruses for these songs would just kind of be the a harmony between the, the other three. And then Darius just kind of like weaves his way through that, I think is how you expressed it, which I didn't really think about until you said it. And then I went back and last night again, I'm listening to these songs and I'm hearing that. And I'm like, that is such a unique thing. Like every live show, he probably did a little bit different weave and a little bit different thing. And but that you guys as the backing harmony there is actually the chorus hook that everyone kind of latches onto. And then the crowd does what you guys are doing while Darius is just kind of weaving with everybody, which I think is super unique and cool because so much time can be spent trying to find that right chorus. That's really going to resonate with people. Yeah. And part of it was understanding how Darius uh, sings and what his strong points are. I would, you know, I'll write a chorus and I think Mark to some degree writes a chorus in a certain way. And we think this melody is the melody. Like we think that's the big part of the chorus, but what we learned was that, and we ex thought when we wrote these courses that that's what Darius would sing. Right. But we, what we learned is he had way more soul and flair to his voice. And, and we used to joke, like he was saying, he'd say that chorus is so freaking white. And it's because <laughs> Mark and I are really white and we have probably less inherent soul in our styles. And so we write these straight melodic and a little square uh, sort of choruses. And Darius would hear and say, that's a great chorus. Why don't the four of you do that? And then I'll do what I'm going to do. And it, at the time, I don't think we thought it was unique or uh, uh, anything. It was just, oh, yeah, you're right you shouldn't have to sing these really straight courses. 
especially when you can wind and weave your way around them and make them so much more uh, emotional and, and energized. So that was the luck of the way we wrote uh, Mark and I, and the way that Darius uh, interpreted things and it worked out yeah. wonderfully. Um, I want to, ju- we're going to jump off a of music a little bit here because there's a lot more depth to this book. And I think that I really haven't gotten to a lot of the stuff that you probably really felt like was important for you to talk about in the book, but there's clues throughout it. There's subtle hints about how alcohol is predominantly becoming a controlling part of your life during this time. And I think a lot of people can relate to this type of idea of the gentle slide of I'm in college, I'm partying, we're having a good time, and then I graduate, maybe I stay in my college town and I get a job there, or I move on to another job, but I continue to be a weekend warrior, or maybe it slips into the weekday too, and it's just slowly becoming more dependent, and I'm just wondering if you can share some of your perspective on that now that you've found sobriety and and can reflect on it. Thanks, and thanks Thanks for that question. It's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a long journey that uh, began like, like anybody, maybe, you know, we're your kids, we have this natural tendency to want to experiment uh, with different ways to feel and see what life gives us. And so sometimes that is a high level curiosity. Sometimes it doesn't come for people until their late teens or 20s. But mine was uh was set off more by the time I was just hitting high school and I had been in a pretty a fairly conformed school setting and and had a small group of friends and I was heading towards the public school and really with a lot of excitement for uh, you know culture and girls and and music and everything what new experiences so part of that for me was as a 14 year old let's see what alcohol makes me feel like and yeah uh, and I don't think that's unnatural uh, and by any means. It's the curiosity that young people have. So uh, fair enough. I, but immediately it was something that I took on more like a sport, <laughs> which maybe is not normal. <laughs> you know, I get whacked the first time. My first attempt, I, I, I feel different when I put it in my in my body and I like it. But then I can't stop it and it keeps going until there's a bad ending. And, you know, the score is uh, quickly gym zero, alcohol uh, one. And (laughs) I don't look at it like, oh, I don't want to do that again. I look at it like I got to do that better. I can overcome this or I can win. And it set me on this lifelong game of uh, how to get the good feeling uh, and not have a consequence. And uh, most people don't look at alcoholic intake as a sport or as a competition. And in my mind, it was, and I was this constant forever balance of how to, how to get something without having to give away, uh, you know, sacrifice anything or have a consequence. And basically rode that through high school, um, rode it through college. And I was a college athlete and, and uh, of course, landing in, in a bar scene with a band in the first half of the nineties, was very comfortable for me because it allowed me to mask it and and there's a no better place to go to a high level of your uh you know alcohol intake and probably not get in much trouble and uh so i just did that i did it and did it until i was doing it so regularly 
that I didn't know how to not do it. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's when that realization hit. Well, that's when, and I realized people were onto me and, and worried about me and anxious and that I was causing some concern. And again, for a normal person, they might take that as, huh, well, maybe I should change paths or maybe I should ask for help or acknowledge that in some way. And uh, I didn't, I was the opposite. I was like, I need to hide this better. I need to mm. like, you know, I wasn't so upset that I had made people upset or they, they were worried. It was just that I felt like, again, in a competition, I need to do this better. I need to yeah. win. So I started hiding it. And I did that just put me on a path of secrecy and, and hiding things, which is bad, isolating. So I probably spent four, three to four years in that period until it became wow. so tiresome and so many consequences and so many other people uh, confronting me about it that I kind of threw up the white flag of surrender. That was sort of the end of 2004. So lucky for me, I didn't have yeah. to end up in a grave. I didn't uh, have to end up in jail, but the people that I found that could help me with it certainly gave me a lot of examples of, you know, or inspiration to, to move forward on this new path, even if it was something I'd never attempted or done before life without alcohol. Uh, songwriting without alcohol, concerts yeah. without alcohol. It was this heavy thing of what? I, I shouldn't do it ever again. <laughs> yeah. And here's why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Do you think that um, had had the band not had that success that you guys found in the mid 90s, do you think you were on that trajectory no matter what? Or do you think that that helped propel it? Oh, I don't know. That's a great question. I mean, I think some form of, uh, as you grow older, life can become more difficult. Let's face it, whether you're oh, yeah. trying to find a job and you're in your 20s or uh, you're in your 30s and starting a family or you've lost a job or you have a great career eclipse that goes high and then goes down. There's, life is just difficult. And I think something eventually would have happened that uh, I couldn't deal with. And I would have started using drugs and alcohol medicinally, just like I did when Hooting the Blowfish started sliding downhill in the early 2000s in our career. I couldn't handle it emotionally and I didn't know what to do with it. So I did what came natural, a yeah. daily fix. You know, oh, this feels better. I'll do this again and again and again and again. That, that would have gotten me, I, I believe, uh, in some point of my life, whether there was Hooting the Blowfish or not. Yeah. Well, I'd like to say from a fan standpoint, I'm really happy you didn't end up, um, what's the best way to say this, showering Bob Dylan in the Grammys bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was reading that and I was like, oh my God, he's really about to do this. And thank God that big bodyguard was there to uh, talk you out of it. <laughs> but that's an amazing story. What an incredible thing to uh, to really be able to reflect on and think. But thank, I'm guessing you look back at that now and just be like, whew, dodged a bullet. Somebody told us early on that <laughs> even bad press is press. And exactly. <laughs> so it's not to say it wouldn't have gotten a big headline. It might have gotten a very big headline, but um, maybe not the best one for the band. Who knows? Maybe no. <laughs> we could become a bad boy band at that point. You know, there was some stuff that um, you were talking about when you guys went to record the um, second album. And it's that it seemed like the recording of that in that studio in Northern California that you guys didn't really have as much 
as especially alcohol around like you were talking about how you were jumping on the treadmill and doing things like that was that like a glimpse into the idea of like like when you look at that point in time are you like oh i still did have some control over it and then it slowly really started to slip over the next three or four years i think the i didn't know at the time but the sort of the the bar or the test for someone whether they're in control or not in control of their alcohol or drugs is uh one of the two things is if you quit ever which many of us can even alcoholics can you stay quit yeah i always knew yeah i'll dry out for a couple days or i'll dry out for a week but i always knew oh yeah it was always just a build up to the next big party so even when we were in the studio there um and i write about this too we had a hard time staying put our Cracked Review was still blowing up and we were making our second record and tried to seclude ourselves out in this studio, but we had so many press opportunities and things we wanted to do. And so, yeah, I could get on a treadmill for four days while we worked 10 hour days in the studio, but I knew Friday was coming and we were heading off to play a charity golf tournament and I knew I would party or we were playing mm-hmm. Frank, Frank Sinatra's 80th birthday party and I knew I was going to party. I mean, I, I rarely would wait till we got to the airport before I started drinking again because I was just ex- excited and wanting to yeah. celebrate life. So it's a it's a trick to say I had the ability to quit. I had the ability to quit, but not to stay quit. Yeah. You know, there's so much talk about sophomore albums. And one of the things that I found so interesting was Darius coming to you guys as a band with the realization of like, we're a lottery right now. The odds of us doing this again are so slim. And then someone's like, well, Michael Jackson did it. And you're like, well, he's the king of pop. Like, of course. But like, we have to be realistic about this. And I'm so intrigued by that because it seems like that's such an easy time just to ride the wave let it all go you guys are young finding that success that you've been striving for for almost a decade but you got what is it enough clarity to be like we need to get in there and get the second album done because the sophomore album is so hard we know it's not going to be and you guys kind of emotionally prepared yourselves for this isn't probably going to have the success as Cracked Review. And I'm just wondering what challenges you found going in to record that second album. Yeah, well, it's real when you when you sit there and really consider that you may have already reached your high point. Yeah. Maybe on your first record. It, it's, it's just such a double-edged sword. God, who doesn't want to sell... 2 million or 6 million or 10 million records. And uh, do you think you appreciated it less because of that? Or do you think because you were worried about that? Or did you guys think you like manage your, your uh, expectations? Well, no, I mean, where we were smart is that we were authentic. We followed our hearts and did what our nature told us to do. And believe me, it was not probably the best business move. Our label allowed us to do what we wanted to do, which is to quickly put out a second record while Crack Review was still in the top 20. Uh, that wasn't something that was the smartest business idea, probably. Uh, I think you'd normally say, let's wait 
Let's make sure we get it right. Let's create some distance where there's some want for the band. But that was not at all our nature. There's no way we were a band that had worked, you know, 360 days a year from 1989, 90, if we could. And so just to say, let's take some time off and let this album, you know, put out another single and do another music video and just go write songs and live your quiet little lives for a little bit. What? It's just, (laughs) there was no way. And, And so thankfully, Darius is the one who sort of broke that, ice and said you, you know this we're, we're probably at the top right now and so let's prepare for that and so the answer to that problem was let's just go start recording a new record and while that sounds like well that yeah, that sounds like a good idea authentic but the process of recording that second record was much more difficult than we thought because we had such confusion we had this group of songs that didn't make cracked review what to do with those because they had fallen to the wayside because we weren't playing them on our concert tours anymore so the, were they dead were they just floating on the top were they should we revive them should we write all new songs if we write all new songs we don't have time to test them in front of audiences that's yep. not a great thing since we'd spent the past four years t- testing all these songs we knew which ones were good so we had a lot going against us uh, in that way. We, you know, you don't have time to prepare a second record if you release it quickly compared to the four years you had preparing your first record. Yeah. So that's, that doesn't bode well for anybody. And, you know, in hindsight, we did the best we could. And if you read another book by Tim Summer, which came out this year as well, about hitting the blowfish. He talks to different band members and different people who were around at that period. And there's some interesting differing views that even uh, I didn't know about. I was unaware that people were feeling at that time. We weren't always the best at showing and our emotions to each other as a band. We were a little dysfunctional in some ways. And, and so I wasn't aware that people had different views about that time. Yeah. Uh, and so but what do you do? You know, there's no looking back and saying, oh, we screwed up. We should have done this. Nah, we did what was authentic to our nature and uh, what will be, will be. Yeah. Um, just a reminder, everyone, the book is Swimming with the Blowfish and it is out now and I highly recommend it. It's I've been enthralled and I'm excited to finish it this week. Um, all right. So let's kind of get to present day now, because what I love to see is that you've overcome so much and you're still creating and writing new music obviously that's something that is deep inside of you and if you try to squash it with you know daily alcohol abuse then that didn't work so it's still in there and i just absolutely love to see us so you've got a new single out i see heaven on earth winter here in the dark spring is so far away Still I'm keeping the faith Love will arrive And bless us with a sunny day And I choose to believe The walls are coming down from What can you kind of tell us about these, this song and, and these new songs in particular? Well, we, uh, I started putting out singles again uh, for this project uh, in the spring or summer and 
it's an EP called Remember Tomorrow. And, you know, my music has arrived here <laughs> in 2022, but it's really uh, as a result of probably 10 years of writing towards this style hmm. where we decided as a band in 2008, basically, uh, 2009 rather, that we would take a period of dormancy. And that meant uh, we'd all have time to breathe a little bit, uh, get back to our personal lives and pay them some attention. Darius had a, a project, a country project that was underway. And so it seemed like a good time to take an indefinite sort of break. And that allowed all of us to spread our musical wings. So really, we all started on a new path around that period. Darius in uh, you know, a new country and uh, Mark and I and Dean in our own solo ways. And I wanted to write about the joyful celebration of transformation in my own life. So that's what I started writing about. Some of it specifically Christian, some of it just more positive and hopeful. And uh, the new EP is a lot of that. It's a lot of saying, you know, I have something to live for. I'm happy about it. I'm grateful. Here's some great things I want to talk about, mainly yeah. love and uh, acting out love here on earth and I guess Heaven on Earth is one of those tunes that I just want to, you know, if I have anything to say, it's that, uh, y'all, we got to love each other. Maybe it's no different than Hold My Hand in 1989. I still feel the same way. If, if we can't act out love toward each other in humble ways, in authentic ways, uh, then we got a big problem. <laughs> the party yeah. will be very short. And uh, so I'm saying the same thing here. You know, the picture that Christians paint of heaven, this wonderful place of redemption and feeling of togetherness. I think it's available here on earth. I see it every day yeah. or I wouldn't choose to live here. And so I wanted to say, I see heaven on earth. Uh, I want you to see it too. And uh, the only way to see it is I think to act it out personally uh, and then keep your eyes around you for all the good things that are happening. So I'm yeah. positive in that way probably a pessimist in some other ways but well i'm that was what that was my next question is you've got 30 years of songwriting credits now and like i, I think for the most part the stuff that you're putting out and the stuff that resonates the most with other people is always circling around this really positive message and i just wondering i mean you said you might be a pessimist but i don't see that i mean that might be the what the public gets to see so we obviously don't get to see um behind all the closed doors but there's definitely something inside of you that wants to share a positive message with people and i'm wondering if you can if you've ever taken the time to think about where that comes from and and why you're lucky enough to do that i think a lot of people you know a lot of music is blues based and it's just talking about like she left me my bills are stacking up they're taking over my house and that kind of stuff and you're like no like that that's all happening too but there's still positivity to see out there yeah i don't know where I think I made the turn, like I said, after I got sober and worked through a couple years and finally realized I have a lot to live for, even without uh, being able to celebrate with alcohol. And and as we go forward, though, really, you know, as we become, I think, a more di di uh, divisive nation and world where seem people seem to think there's only two ways to think about any one thing. You're either way over here or you're way over there. And if you're not, we probably need to fight about it. And uh, if you're not on my side, we need to fight about it. And so th that struck me also is, wait a sec, this can't be. We, 
there's got to be some better way. So I, I, yeah, I do choose to write about the, the positive, the thing that I think is the solution uh, for all this divisiveness, which is coming together, putting down your weapons and trying to figure out what you have in common, not what you have uh, that's different. You know, I, I don't know. I, I just, there's still things to be pessimistic about, but I accept that um, if, if we don't lean into the good things, we're going to be in big trouble. Like I know there's some things that I am pessimistic about. I know people are going to continue to be terrible drivers and I'm one of them, <laughs> right? I know that politicians are horrible and yeah. I can't help that feeling because I see evidence of it every day. <laughs> so that may not, not all politicians, just about 96% of them. I think we can jump that up to 99. Right. So a large <laughs> amount are rather self-serving as opposed to people serving and I accept that. I accept that the, the media or big media chooses to rely on gross, sensationalized, negative news to catch our attention. I can't yeah. change that. But what I can change or what I can promote is the other thing, the optimism of we have love. We are capable of it. There's evidence of it all around us. I'd rather sing about that. And I'd rather not sing about you're doing, I don't want to point the finger either and be that sort of anti-singer where I just uh, tell everyone in, in a screaming form what I'm disappointed with or frustrated with. I don't know. I, somebody's singing about that. It's just not going to be me. <laughs> okay. Well, I like that. What a, what a really good message to, uh, to kind of continue on with. And, and like, there's, there's a space in the music world for these types of positive messages. And especially right now, because I don't know, the last couple of years have been really trying, I think, mentally for a lot of people. Um, so appreciate that kind of positive message. I've got one more question, and you're wearing a, uh, a jersey right now. What do you think of the U.S. men's national team's chances coming up here? Um, what do I think of their chances? I'll try and just answer your question. But it's hard. <laughs> no, you can go around it because I have so many thoughts on this. And now I've married an English woman who we're grouped with, so we're going to be a little house divided here. I have faith <laughs> and it's not based on like the hard numbers. I don't think we've, you know, shown that we're this force to be reckoned with, but I have faith that there's a spirit on that team, an American spirit that is unique and knows what it's like to be the underdog and tends to rise to the occasion. So I have a, a faith uh, based on a lot of our previous teams too, that no one ever has believed we have like this, team to be reckoned with no one mm -hmm. puts us there and that's fine let's uh, let's be the underdogs and fight our way out and see uh, if we can't come up with a great result so you know these younger players I'm not even familiar with all of them like I was the last generation but yeah. I sure as hell will be by the time November comes around and I'll have the jersey and I'll if it's not a hideous one I'll have the new jersey and um, <laughs> please USA soccer don't make a hideous jersey i'd like to wear them <laughs> not have to just keep them in my closet uh but yeah i have great hopes i'm so excited and i'm so i'm so jaded as well i just can't believe that this was a straight up bought world cup and it's being put at a time of year that's unconventional in a place yep. that's unconventional i just uh i don't like that and i'll be happily watching it on tv at thanksgiving and <laughs> but I don't like it. Yeah, it is really interesting to think about that heat 
and just all the different things that go into it. I mean, that you can get into the political side of things and all that kind of stuff. But I guess I'm hopeful that not qualifying for the last cup put a chip on their shoulder. Yeah. And just as like, we need to uh, reinstate ourselves as someone that people talk about on the global scale because it really hasn't happened that much. There's been little glimpses of it over time, but like consistency is what you need. And it's always just been astonishing to me that a country of 300 million people can't field 11 that seem to be able to compete regularly on the global stage. No, we have a deep cultural thing that's we're struggling with. And I, I can say this because I've been playing soccer since the seventies and watching it and seeing how the USA uh, deals with it. And I'm probably a pessimist in that sense that, you know, I've, I've continually heard it's the next generation or it's this generation, yeah. <laughs> but you know, that's going to do it in America. But I'm a bit of a pessimist because I, I hate seeing that going forward, we haven't made giant strides and maybe, maybe there are strides, maybe having players, you know, that are American playing abroad and, and, uh, and, you know, England, Ireland, Germany, uh, Scott, you know, wherever, maybe that is a great stride, but as a team and as a country, I wish, uh, we were having a bigger impact. It was just so hurtful to, to miss the last world cup. I'm still, I think a little bit sore. I remember, I just remember watching that game and just being like, I just can't believe we just lost this. We're not going no, <laughs> so incredible. It. We got, you got to earn it, man. And, and so in that sense, we didn't need to be there, but it's a big hole to dig out of after eight years to, get yourself back up there and say, Hey, here we are. We're, you know, don't forget about us. Absolutely. Um, Jim, thank you so much. Uh, please go check out this music and book everybody. Um, I really appreciate your time, your music, past, present and future and, and just the overall message. And, uh, and thanks for spending some time with me today. Thank you. Have a great day. Look forward to seeing y'all soon. You know, it's not easy to come on to a show like this and talk to a complete stranger in his audience about some of your life struggles, and I'd just like to thank Jim for coming on and doing that. Great stuff hearing about his songwriting with Hootie and the Blowfish, as well as his new work, which I find to be really inspiring stuff. So thank you so much, and thank you for listening, and as always, for the stories behind the song, go to songfacts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. 
That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 